when I wanted to go into university, I couldn't because I had math blocks, really bad math blocks. I couldn't do math to save my life. And it wasn't until I got older after having programmed computers for many years that I'd finally gotten to the point where I could do math. It was always hard. It is still hard for me right now uh, to do even basic arithmetic. Whether you want to become an astronomer and work in the field of astronomy, or if you want to become an astronomer with a capital A, uh, will determine how much education you get. Astronomers with capital A require a PhD. If you just want to work in astronomy, you can get a bachelor's degree. Light pollution is just an issue. If you look at a light pollution map of the, the world, it's not. there aren't many places that people are where light pollution isn't. Hey everybody, in this episode, Dustin and I will take listener questions. I'm very excited about this episode because you guys have asked some really cool stuff. So, let's get started. Hello everyone and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Okay, well, today we're going to be doing, we're going to be taking some questions that you guys have sent us, some of the listener feedback that we get after having started this podcast. We've been doing this now for long enough. We've got a nice, steady stream of comments coming in and as well as some questions. And so today we thought we would just get to some of those questions and talk about them a little bit. So, uh, Dustin, you out there? I am. What's up, Tony? Hey, man. How you doing? Uh, Good. I'm, I'm really excited that we're getting this kind of feedback now, right? I mean, we're at a point in our podcasting career where we're starting to get people asking us stuff and giving us feedback. And I love that time. And I want to just remind everybody listening that if you happen to listen to this podcast on anchor.fm, you don't have to, there's lots of different syndicated ways you can get this podcast, but we initially upload it on anchor.fm and what it has in it. If you have the app, especially on your phone is an ability to leave us a voice message of any length and what happens is it gets sent to our account and we can play it back in our podcast so you guys can actually be on our podcast with your question if you have one or your comment either one so that's a that's a mechanism that's open to you that we don't advertise very much because i think we just forget about it but if you want to leave some comments and questions you can do that on the anchor.fm app and you can also uh, support us there as well so there's a way to uh, support this podcast as well so i uh, just thought i'd bring that up because it's a really cool feature and we get your recorded voice to put on the podcast. So remember that if you have questions in the future. Okay, so uh, what do you got, Dustin? What kind of questions yeah, you got? Yeah, this is cool. And, and I'm getting uh, messages from a lot of different ways now. You know, we're, the marketing team here is getting uh, the ones that are going to like Space Drunk Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, a lot of that, and that's where a lot of these came from. But I'm also getting questions to the Gibson Picks page on Instagram just about every single day. So thank you to everyone that's... Uh, that's doing that. And we definitely want to answer your questions. So um, keep them coming. And I'll keep throwing some of these at uh, Tony because these are some good. Some of these are some good questions. And I'm excited to hear your answers, Tony. So, uh, okay, cool. Let's let's hear one. What some of them get a little personal. 
Uh-oh. <laughs> yep, here we go. <laughs> and some of them don't. Well, I so, think in the last episode, I was just talking about observing in the nude, so I'm not quite sure how uh, personal, much more personal we can get than that, but there we go. <laughs> I don't, by the way. Just let me just say that for the record, just to be official. Yes. <laughs> sure. Yeah, now everyone's going, yeah, right. that need to be made sure. official? It's, 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 it's out there now. Now I'm going to I'm gonna have to combat it every episode. Florida Stop talking when you're out making the telescope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So question number one, this is the first one we got, which is, um, Tony, what's the best advice you would give to a beginner astronomer? A beginner astronomer. Um, yeah. Somebody looking to get into it. What's, what's the advice you're going to get? What's the you first mean, you, thing uh, you're going to get say? into the professional realm? Is that the question? Um, you know, they just say beginner astronomer. So let's answer it both okay. ways. Let's talk about right. somebody that wants to pursue it as a career. And then let's talk about it. Somebody wants just to get into the hobby. I know because you're often trying to make the point. You just want to get rid of the amateur thing entirely, right? Everybody's just an astronomer. There is no distinction between what an amateur does and what a professional does, especially in this day and age of citizen science. Right. And so, well, I guess, I guess the first thing I would want to know is what are your, what, you know, what are you interested in? What is your big passion about? astronomy is it to do research and to further the field itself or is it to just satisfy your own personal curiosity about the night sky now those can go hand in hand and you can do them both at the same time if you want there's nothing precluding that but i will start with my personal uh journey into amateur astronomy and that was i was very lucky when i was in high school to have access to a celestron 8 telescope and a RV6 uh, <laughs> Criterion piece of crap Newtonian six-inch reflector that I Very could take lucky home. Indeed. <laughs> well, I it was luck. It was a it it was junky, but it showed me stuff, right? And I didn't have to buy it. And this was in the this was in the late seventies, and I I could just explore my my curiosity and my interest with with telescopes that were out there uh, at the school. I didn't have to spend a lot of money, and that is something that as a student was everything to me because it allowed me to get underneath um, the night sky and behind an eyepiece and see all this stuff for myself without having any money. And from there, I learned that that was what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to study astronomy. I wanted to know about these stars. I wanted to know about galaxies, how old the universe was and all that other stuff. So it was a springboard to my professional career. If you're just getting started in amateur astronomy, and you don't have uh, access to telescopes like I did from a high school or some museum or some uh, star uh, uh, astronomy club, then in you know I would I would say my advice is always, and, and Dustin can give his input on this as well because I'm sure he has advice as well. When you're buying your first telescope that you've never owned before, I would not try to spend more than five hundred dollars on it. My advice is that if you if you're just getting started and you're not sure how you're going to respond to the hobby, then get yourself a simple to use telescope that is um, uh, under $500. And I don't know. The reason I say that, Dustin, is that I don't want people to, to, to just dump a lot of coin on something that they're not interested in and end up putting it in the, in the uh, closet. Uh, so that's why I give that advice. What do you say to those people? Yeah, I agree with you when you say simple, but I don't know that, and you know, I'm not saying this because of... Dobsonian, uh, you know, I guess obviously. is what I mean, something like a Dobsonian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that 
the price is really like whatever's comfortable in your budget is what you, some people that can be, you know, $50 telescope and uh, they, they're out there and, you know, people love looking at Jupiter and Saturn with them and, and they're, they're fun and you get a lot of use out of it. I think whatever the right scope is, is something that you can, you know, comfortably afford and that you can, is portable enough for you to use getting started to where it's not going to be a hassle to get it out and go set it up. That's the thing that I feel like gets a lot of people out of the hobby quickly is that they, they buy scopes that are kind of beneath that frustration curve. Um, you know, where they've got, uh, you know, like the equatorial mounts with these little manual handles that people really tend to struggle with trying to figure out how to polar align if you've never used a telescope before. And so generally, if it's just somebody trying to do uh, visual astronomy or just see the moon for the first time, I almost always recommend a daub, you know, a small yeah, daub, something that's alt has just left, right, up and down, which is easy to understand. It's intuitive. And you it's, it's as simple as just point it at the light you want to see. That's yep. it. Point it at the light, focus that light until it, it comes into focus to where it's the smallest it can possibly get. And then you can see Jupiter and Saturn and see the moon in really great detail and all that stuff. And that's, that's what's exciting. That's what gets people hooked. And I've seen people jump into the hobby at the $50 level. And I've seen people jump into the hobby at the, you know, the $30,000 level. And I can say that both times when they were successful with the equipment they used, they were hooked. And Tony, I mean, you're a great example of this, but using a telescope changed your life mm -hmm. entirely. My story is no different. And most of the people we talk to, their story is no different. It, it has the power to do that. And very few things do, but astronomy is certainly one of them. It is a perspective you can get nowhere else. And so being successful is the key. And you have to know yourself in order to do that. If what you can afford is a $500 telescope, then get a $500 telescope. If, if it's 50, get a 50. Some people, they just say, hey, I want the absolute best because that's what excites me. They jump in, they spend 50,000. It, it's really, I don't think the price is as important as getting something that you can be successful with that keeps you excited to use it. That's that's where I generally try to get people in. Yeah. And some people know they just don't want to do visual. From the beginning, I've had customers that call me like, I have no interest in using an eyepiece. I just want to take pictures. And so, you know, they, there's no jumping in for them at $50. They're, they're going to have to go in at, you know, a few hundred or more or 500. Well, I said 500. It would be that. Don't spend more than that. But uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think I like the way you put it better uh, to spend what you can comfortably afford that. And that'll be different for everyone. I, I pick a number out of the blue because I figure most people would comfortably afford something under $500. But, um, and that would mean a halfway decent Dobsonian of about the eight to 10 inch uh, class. And so that's, but I like the way you put it better with uh, what you can comfortably afford and simple. It has got to be simple. You can take one, you could look at a Dobsonian and see how they work. You don't need a manual. You don't need anything. You just can start doing it. There is and looking no at learning it. curve. That's right. Zero, zero learning curve on a Dobsonian. That's yeah. right. And it will be a telescope that telescopes don't degrade. They don't get bad over time. They don't, they don't even really lose their value. Uh, if they're half, if they're a halfway decent build. So you will always go back to that telescope and still enjoy it as much as the first day you bought it 25 years later. Uh, you'll, and the simple ones are the ones you're going to take out the most. You'll be like, wow, I, you know, I feel like yeah. looking at Jupiter tonight because it's really bright and the sky is clear. You just grab it, you put it up on your driveway and you're looking at Jupiter five minutes later. 
Um, if yeah. you've got something big and complicated, then it might be a little more onerous. You might think to yourself, eh, maybe I'll just stay inside, you know? Well, that's <laughs> so. like these, uh, these Stellinas, you know, and that's why I say for, for a lot of people, that's the right scope. So the Stellina is a lot more expensive. It's about $4,000. Yeah. But the Stellina is an all-in-one astrophotography package that you can do with zero learning curve. I mean, it's, it's the Dobsonian of astrophotography. That's you really know, true. it's like you turn this thing on, it only has one button. You look at the app and say, point to this target and it starts showing you live images on your phone. So for a lot of families, they're opting to go that way. I mean, we, we're actually out of them right now. I mean, we, we bring them in all of the ones into the country and we're out right now. You know, it's like if, because for a lot of people, $4,000 is the starting point. Cause it's not the, the telescope for the mom or the telescope for the dad or whatever, for the kid, it's the telescope for the whole family. And that's what they do as a family. That's what they use it together. And you, know, you think about it, it's it's a lot of money. $4,000 is a lot of money, but it's also an entire astrophotography pack, package to explore the universe. And, you know, going on vacation somewhere can run into $4,000. And now we're talking about a tool that can explore the entire universe. It's really a lot of people are finding reasons that it works for them and, and it makes sense. And they've been very happy with it. Yeah, it's one so, of those game changer telescopes. You're absolutely right. And the hope yeah. is, I don't know what you think about it, but the hope is that with all new technology like this, uh, the price point may come down in the future. I mean, we don't know, but, um, you know, that's the hope. And so maybe yeah. these things can come down yeah, too. Absolutely. So. But you're right. It's an right. amazing scope. Yeah, I think people just just get involved where you know you're going to be successful. And that's that's one thing that we we stay focused on here. You know, we have our team meetings every day. The staff has to go through. We have something called OPT University here, but um, they have to go through 45 minutes of ed education every single day. And uh, it's a big part of what we talk about is trying to make sure that regardless of where people get in, that they stay successful because Nothing is more frustrating than spending any amount of money. Even if you're going in and you spend 40 bucks, whatever it is you did, you put your trust in that thing working. Yeah. And when you buy something and all it ends up being is frustration and a pain in the ass, and then you're out in the cold and you got nothing to show for it except something filling closet space, it's like, we didn't do our job, if that's the case, you know? And, and so I just think that being successful is the goal. Obviously, people call us because they have an interest in space, they have an interest in seeing these things. And every tool in this building is designed to do that, but there are different tools to connect different people to it in the way that they need to be connected. So I just don't think a dollar amount is the right suggestion. I just think it's it's what is it you're trying to do and how can this yeah. tool help you be successful? I like that too. I like that a lot better. And also join our community. I mean, if you think about it, Dustin, I mean, we've got our Instagram communities. We've got Gibson Picks, we've got OPT Corp, and we've got uh, Space Junk Podcast. We've got Deep Astronomy all on Instagram, but there's also uh, the Deep Astronomy YouTube channel. We're also, uh, Dustin and I have plans to get onto Twitch this year. So you'll get direct access to all of the expertise that we have. So join our community and follow us and, and interact with us in all these different ways, not, to, not in addition to what the, the Anchor uh, FM app gives you and, and all these other things. So we're going to be giving you a lot more opportunity to interact with us as well over the coming year. So that's another option for you. And um, on the, let me just make a quick comment on the professional side uh, of, this, of this question of what do I recommend for beginner astronomers? When I... When I wanted to go into 
university, I couldn't because I had math blocks, really bad math blocks. I couldn't do math to save my life. And it wasn't until I got older after having programmed computers for many years that I'd finally gotten to the point where I could do math. It was always hard. It is still hard for me right now uh, to do even basic arithmetic. But my advice is to become an astronomer, you're, you, you'll, you'll have to get a degree, whether you want to become an astronomer and work in the field of astronomy, or if you want to become an astronomer with a capital A, uh, will determine how much education you get. Astronomers with a capital A require a PhD. If you just want to work in astronomy, you can get a bachelor's degree. And the advice I gave my son, who is now following it, is to do not get the degree in astronomy if your university offers it. Instead, go for the physics degree. It is a better degree overall uh, as far as a foundational uh, science uh, training than you're going to get with astrophysics. There are, there are, astrophysics sounds harder, but it's actually not as hard. You, there are classes and there are some things you have, you don't have to take as an astrophysics major. So get the physics degree and, um, if you want to go to think hard about whether you want to go to grad school or not, because that is a career path that is full of stress and a lot of work. And if you really want to get that PhD, then get it because you want the PhD and not for any other reason. Because if you try to get a, if you think you're going to get a better job or if you think you're going to go to work at a university as a professor, all of this kind of stuff, you're setting yourself up because it is extremely competitive. You can get a very rewarding job and have a rewarding career in professional astronomy without a PhD. I was a software engineer. I wrote code that, uh, that, that controlled cameras, that controlled telescopes, that processed images from telescopes all over the world. And I also served those images on websites and data archives. So I had a very rewarding career. I was very much in demand. I could get a job anywhere I wanted with my skill set because what, what, was really in demand is people who can build things and people who can program things. And you will get a very nice job in astronomy if you just get a bachelor's degree in, in physics. To, some, to a lesser extent, I think a, a computer science degree would help, but um, I would prefer the, the physics only because you can get a better uh, understanding of the science that's involved with that degree than you would with a computer science degree. That's my, so that's my advice. Um, think long and hard about a PhD though. Uh, those are expensive, onerous, and you will be, uh, under a lot of stress to publish papers, to be on committees, to, uh, it's up or out, you know, and I, I can't tell you how many grad students and postdocs I met who have told me that they're leaving the field because of the competition. So, uh, but I never had to worry about it with a with a bachelor's degree. I could just go as, as a software engineer position over at the Dark Energy Survey, or there was, you know, a program of they needed uh, somebody to help build cameras over at you know CTIO. So I was able to to go wherever my skills would take me, and I had a lot of choices. <laughs> so that's that's if you're going to go for the professional route. That's my advice. Yeah, I think that that's probably really good advice. It's it's <laughs> likely not what people expect to hear when talking about education, but um, but yeah, I agree with just about everything you said. Well, you know, I mean, on the topic of higher education in general, a physics degree is one of the few I think that's actually still worth the money you pay for a degree these days. I mean, that will pay you back uh, what you've spent on it uh, in form of salary and future work uh, prospects. Anybody who has a physics degree 
uh, is a valuable job candidate in the job market, even if it's not in science, because it prepares you for lots of other jobs that maybe it isn't directly related to science, but requires critical thinking. So they, you see, a, you see that on a resume and it is a valuable thing, even if you don't go into science. So that's why I gave my advice to my son who I, who is getting a physics degree at the same university I went to university of Colorado. And, um, he isn't sure that he wants to go into science. So, but he does know that in the job market, it will help him. So the only thing I disagree with that you said is that you have to, if you want to work in astronomy, you have to get a degree in astronomy. And I know that to not be true. Well, um, most of the job qualifications will require it. Um, like if you want to work at a professional observatory, the minimum requirements are almost always a bachelor's degree in a physical science. That's why I say that. Yeah, it's not it's not always the case. I mean, like Blake Estes here, he you know, an OPT employee for a long time, and now he uh, he runs the telescope out at uh, Mount Wilson Observatory. And uh, I mean, he never went to get uh, you He's know he didn't get his there, education. Right? He uh, he operates the telescope. The right. what is it? The hundred inch. Um, and so it's just like like it depends on what you want to do, but. I don't think you have to. There are a lot of different paths, not just, you know. Well, being... it may be, that may be true, but he's going. So, so Blake might be uh, one of the, uh, I don't want to say because I don't know his particular circumstances, but let's say that I wanted to be a telescope operator at, a, at an observatory and I did not have a degree. I know for a fact I'm going to be competing with others that do. And so. Mm -hmm. At least maybe the job requirement won't say it. Telescope operators tend to not. And then technicians like building technicians or telescope technicians uh, don't always list a bachelor's degree as a requirement. So you're right. There are entries there, but there's also a low ceiling. You can't go very far once you've gotten that job. You wouldn't be able to, say, get a software engineer four position or a, you know, uh, uh, engineer five or whatever it is that, you know, can go up that ladder. Your career ladder is much shorter without the degree. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I know this is, we've, we've argued this point before, but I really think that in, in look, I've, I've done a lot of the education. I mean, I'm halfway through the PhD track in astronomy myself, and I, I don't even know that I'll finish it. I just don't have much interest in it anymore, but um, at least in that part of it. But um, the, you know, the thing is, is I just feel like, like everybody in this building is contributing on a, you know, insane level to astronomy contributing. We probably contribute as much or more data from the observatories and from all of the different projects we're doing to astronomy than any astronomer would claim. You know, we are certainly doing more public outreach than any astronomers could, could claim. And that's, a, that's the job of many astronomers. You know, we are um, supplying more telescopes and, you know, more systems and building them than an astronomer could claim. So, and I mean, these people that are doing this, some of them here are educated in astronomy or astrophysics and some are not. And so I just think it really, like you can do whatever it is at, at, you know, whichever level it is you want. Some jobs require that you go to school for it and that you get a degree. But if you want to work in astronomy, just in general, I don't think you have to go get a degree to do that. And, I, and I agree with you. You're right. Uh, as there are plenty of 
jobs that you can you can get OPT and others other places like that have you and and these are high quality people. I'm not saying that in order to become a quality person you need a degree, uh, but I'm just saying that in the professional job market in general, you go to any of the websites, you go to Keck's website, you go to uh, right. uh, any observatory that's hiring professional astronomers and look at their job requirements. And yeah. the engineer level positions are almost always bachelor's level uh, as a minimum. And of course, if you wanted to become an astronomer with a capital A, you've got to have the PhD. That's by definition what that job is. So um, you, you, there's, I could never be an astronomer, although I'm a science communicator. I think it matters that I have a degree in physics. I, but there are plenty, as you rightly point out, very, very good science communicators that don't have any edu formal education at all, and yet they do a really, really good job. So that's a right. different path. That's a less formal one. But if you are going to go the formal astronomer with a capital A route, then education is in your future. There's just no way around it. So I've got a few more questions here. Okay. All right. So the next one is, um, let's see, Tony, how do we address the light pollution issue? Turn off our freaking lights, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just get everybody you know to turn off their lights. That's yeah. enough, right? Well, what do you say, Dustin? What, let me get your answer first, and I'll tell you. What. Uh, you know, I got, a, I got a feeling that this is not talking about imaging because, you know, we talk about that so much on the podcast that you can use filters to cut through the light pollution, uh, things like the triad filter, things like uh, narrowband, just HA filters and stuff like that. So we talk about that a lot. So I'm assuming that this question is addressing... Um, the light pollution issue with visual astronomy. And that's a, that's a much, much uh, more difficult challenge than the imaging one. Um, man, uh, habits of people in, in cities and in, in governments, and um, I don't really know that there's a simple solution. You have organizations that like the IDA that are trying very hard to affect change in this, but uh, light pollution is just an issue. If you look at a light pollution map of the the world, it's not. There aren't many places that people are where light pollution isn't. You know, unless you're going to be somewhere where other people are not, you're likely going to have a light pollution issue, where it's going to be very hard to see things like the Milky Way with your bare eye, and uh, you know, certainly, you know, faint things like Andromeda or you know the Orion Nebula with your bare eye. That's going to be challenging. Yeah, and so my response is. Our night skies are going to be gone. They're, they're, they're already gone to many of us, and they're never coming back. There's no way we're going to turn back the, the clock on uh, our dark skies and get them the way they were before the, you know, like the late 19th century. Those days are long gone, and they're not coming back. So we've got to get used to what we've got now. There will, there will be, in places around the world, pockets of beautiful, pristine, night skies and in a minute i'm going to talk about elon musk but they may be gone too they may be threatened too but we will always have these pockets in the world where we will have this pristine night sky the rest of us can kiss it goodbye i'm actually quite worried about the future of visual astronomy behind an eyepiece i think because you're talking be, about starlink right that's where you're talking about well musk, that's, part that's of the it. very next question yeah, yeah, okay, so we'll get to Starlink in just a minute then. But the, to just talk about light pollution as it is now, it's gone. We're never going to get it back. Think about how long the, ID, the IDA has been around, and they've been working, and they help you to buy full cutoff light fixtures. They tell you to buy these certain, you know, 
uh, wavelength uh, sodium vapor lamps so that they can be filtered better instead of using mercury vapor lamps. They tell they try to tell car dealerships how to build how to build their parking lots so that they're not lighting up. You know, you can't see them from space. You know, um, but no one's listening. Just like they're not listening about so many other things that are happening in our environment. So night skies are going. They're not coming back. So the 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 task before us now as amateurs is what what are what tools can we implement uh, to fight it? The Stellina, which, which we just talked about, uh, is one of those tools. I think that as a uh, dark sky or as a, a general observing telescope to be able to take it outside and in less than ten minutes under a street light, I can see the Crab Nebula. To me, that is the that is the future of visual astronomy. And I would love to, and I can't wait till we talk to David Nagler again. I think he's coming on in a couple of uh, episodes. I would like to know what he thinks about this. You know, what does a company like Teleview think where they depend on visual dark skies? Are they worried at all about this? I certainly am. And I am not, I am not optimistic at all that we're going to ever get back any kind of dark skies. Um, we already, so many people already don't know what the Milky Way looks like. Uh, very few people can pick out all the stars in the Milky Way. That's the world we live in now. So all we can do is adapt because no one's going to suddenly give us back our night skies. I'm sorry I'm so pessimistic about it, but do you think it's possible? You're pessimistic really? about everything, Tony. Listen, I, I, I'm going to post I, I, I've that I've learned quote. that about myself with you. I guess I am. <laughs> But don't you, do you see it? Are you optimistic? Do you see? I am. Like, I am. You know, I always am, man. Um, but but how? First how, off. How is LA going to get a, a halfway decent night sky again? I'm going to post your quote um, from this podcast. You just said, very few people. And you said, you said in that voice that made me trust it. You know, <laughs> you said, very few people can point out all the stars in the Milky Way. Yeah. <laughs> just thought, damn, I don't know that anyone can, Tony. That's a hundred billion stars to name, man. What do you, what kind of statement was that? Well, stars, I mean, you can, you, you can see any stars in the Milky Way. Uh, yeah. Very few people, guys, can point out each of the stars in the Milky Way to me anymore. You know? <laughs> well, can they? <laughs> Can how many are there, how many can you see on a given night? Four hundred I mean, years in the ago, middle, this was not a problem. People <laughs> used to name off these stars to me every night, every star. <laughs> All right, fuck off. But now, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think it's a problem. I do. And and LA is a good example because um, you know it's such a terrible, terrible, terrible place. <laughs> but, <laughs> I don't I don't go north ever man I'm a San Diego guy but anyway um yeah I don't think you're gonna go to LA and just start waving your hands in the air and say everybody please I care about the night sky will you turn your lights off everybody's gonna be like no I'll, I will immediately get robbed yeah. immediately well there's so that I'm not doing too. that for you yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's too. unsafe to do so, and yeah. and there's there are some valid arguments for that. So I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think you're going to convince entire cities to do it. I think you might change the type of lights that you know uh, communities use, and, and that sort of thing. But the population's growing. There are more lights around. There are going to be more lights around, and I think it's going to be a growing issue. But 
one thing that we know is that when issues arise, humanity generally finds ways to solve it. And so for, for a long time, Tony, you know, you remember the days when people weren't flying. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember when I had to trade my horse in for one of those horseless carriages. That was a, that was a big day for our family. And when but we got they... the electric light, man, oh man. <laughs> but they had this issue. And so they found a way, man. They found a way. And I think that it's, it's no different with this. You know, maybe I am just a positivist all the time, but um, I, I do believe that if there's a problem, there's generally a solution to be found. Well, of course there's a solution to be found, but it won't be implemented. The only thing we've ever solved that has been a problem. Won't be implemented. <laughs> <laughs> They'll find yes. the solution, damn it, but they're never going to do it. Well, th- th- there's obviously <laughs> solutions to light pollution. There's obviously solutions to the problems facing humanity. The, the yeah. question is, are we going to do it? And that's the real question. And of course, you know, with uh, now you made me forget what I was going to say. I got all got all flustered. Oh, the only the only one that we actually solved that was a problem that we actually solved was the ozone hole. Now you don't remember this because you were still in diapers, but there used to be a problem with the ozone layer disappearing, and it was because we were using all these chlorofluorocarbons in our aerosol cans, and they were going out destroying the ozone, and it was cause it was going to cause a lot of problems with radiation coming in from the sun. Well, the world got together and decided, you know what? This is not good. Let us not do this anymore to the atmosphere. We stopped. The ozone hole has now been uh, uh, closed up or, you know, uh, been replenished. And now there's an ozone layer again. That's the only problem I think that we've actually solved. Everything else has just been, you know, well, we could do this. Uh, we could turn off some lights. We could get some formal cut off light fixtures. Maybe use a sodium vapor lamp here and there. But, you know, it's light pollution is just going to get worse because people want technology that the, the energy use is going to go up. It's not going to go down. LED lights didn't help anything. It helped maybe make them cheaper to operate, but they're certainly every bit as bright. They're also harder to filter uh, than a sodium vapor lamp is. So what direction are we heading with light pollution? Are we heading to less light pollution or more light pollution? Of course there's solutions. We can do all kinds of things about it, but will we? That's the question. I'm not optimistic. Yeah, it takes more than just understanding the problem. I, I agree. It does. It gets pe- you have to get people on board f- with the solution. But I think that um, that if it becomes a big enough problem, it will get enough attention to be solved. If it becomes a big enough problem, do you think? Do you think life pollution is a big enough problem? Do you think it's all that big? Well, so what if we can't see? The I stars? think that we're going to see something that uh, you know we're, is the very next question. That is going to uh, get a lot more people thinking about problems like these a lot more rapidly. People are going to start looking at this now because of what Elon Musk is doing with Starlink. You know, it's going to draw attention to what we see in the night skies and, you know, the limitations caused by it for astronomy. And that discussion, I think, will have a positive impact in general on the light pollution discussion as well. So let me describe the problem first. For those of you who don't know, the company SpaceX, which is run by Elon Musk, has been approved by the Federal Communications Commission to launch and operate uh, 12,000 satellites initially that will go into low Earth orbit. And they will, with the idea that it will provide internet access, high speed, low latency, high uh, internet access to everyone. And to do this properly, 
he's going to need up to 60,000 satellites. Now, he, I believe, has gotten approval for up to 42,000, and the remaining number are going to be uh, probably also approved. So um, I don't have the number off the top of my head of how many satellites are over there. I think it's on order. We have currently less than 10,000 satellites in orbit right now. So we're looking at uh, quadrupling that uh, at a minimum, probably going up to six times that, uh, what's currently up there to provide internet access uh, for the entire world. This is what Elon Musk wants to do. He's not the only one. Uh, Jeff Bezos also wants to launch 3,600 satellites to do the same thing. And then there's another company, I forget its name now, but it wants to do a smaller amount, several hundred, uh, to go up and provide internet access for everybody. So that's the uh, background of what's going on. Now, the people who are immediately affected by this are professional astronomers because the, I think he's got 60 up there now, maybe, maybe over a hundred. I think now he's got up there so far and they are immediately visible through ground-based observatories in their images uh, as they, and they show up as satellite trails across the image. And in one image uh, that is that an astronomer from Cerro Tololo in Chile took had 16 satellite trails through it. This was a four hour exposure of a, uh, that was using a four meter telescope that costs thousands of dollars to use that they had waited months, if not years to get access to. And when they finally did, they get their images and this is what happens to it. Now you may say to yourself, so what? This is an astronomer. He can just do it again. Well, like I just said, he waited a long time to get access to that telescope. And this was a four hour image. He doesn't have a long time at night to, to, to just take this over and over again. So it's expensive and it really hurts scientific research to be able from the ground to understand things in space. And so do you think, Dustin, that, that Elon Musk has said that he will work with astronomers? The American Astronomical Society is studying the problem to find out if this is actually a problem. But I think it, it's hard to imagine that it isn't with 60,000 satellites over our heads. Do you think yeah. this is such a big deal? I agree. It's it's hard to imagine that it won't be. Um, as of right now, it's you know I, I see a lot of people posting the pictures of different satellites and their images and, and talking about it a lot. And it's not. It's obviously not ideal. I just don't know how you stop it. I don't know how you you say we don't want global internet access. That's exactly um, right. You know, like, how do you, how do you do that? I think yep. that obviously I, w I wish there was a better solution. And I hope that when Elon is saying, look, I'll work with astronomy, which I don't know that he'll have a choice. I think that's him saying I will, because he doesn't have a choice. I mean, astronomy is big business and, um, you know, they're, they're building billion dollar telescopes. They're not just going to say, Elon, yeah, well, let us help your company at the expense of this. You know, if it becomes that kind of problem. I don't think that he'll be able to just say, well, you already said yes, it'll just be shut down, but, or changed. But anyway, um, I don't know. I don't know if it's not just manifest destiny. I don't know what to do. I mean, if you have more reasons to put satellites up, more satellites are going to go up and it's only going to continue that direction. So without international space law being more and more defined, which it will be, I really don't know what can be done. That's and I you you're absolutely that's well said because it is the problem itself. There is momentum here that I don't think is going to be overcome. Manifest destiny was a term you used. It's a good one that we 
the the solution of having global internet access is going to be so attractive to everyone. I want it. I, I think it's a great idea. I would love to be able to go into the forest of the Amazon and get, you know, a gigabit speed internet. That would be awesome. Uh, so right. I want this as well. But it's also exactly why we're never going to get our night skies back. It's magna, it's, it's manifest destiny. This, these, this inexorable push of technology is, is going to come at a cost. And one of the costs is going to be our night skies. And the other one's going to be doing ground-based astronomy uh, and getting some pretty darn good algorithms for getting rid of satellite trails. Now, he's promised that he'll paint them all, he'll spray paint them all black and, and make them as anti-reflective as he can. But that's only going to go so far. They're still going to pass through the field of view and affect the data. So, right. I think it's I think it's a done deal. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's, it's yeah. Not. He's going to paint them all with Vanna black so they completely disappear. But then stars are popping in and out of the frame, and it's like <laughs> there are exoplanets around everything. <laughs> Whoa! Did you see that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> we just saw exoplanets around the moon, dude. You know? Did you see that? Well, I, I know it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So God, I guess yeah. I am a negative Nelly man. I never really thought about it. But you I, are. This stuff pisses me off, man. I don't like. I don't like this. I mean, I on the one hand, I want global internet. I would love it. But on the other, do you think Elon Musk is going to like be be uh, you know going to give it to us cheap? No, it's not. You know, he's going to make some serious coin on this. So he's not going to just do it from the goodness of his heart. And then we're going to be at the you know at his mercy. He'll probably own the internet just like uh, Google does now. So I don't know. It's just um, I'm I'm just tired of. Uh, the the cost always being either science or something science related, and in particular, the night sky. I just yeah, I just yeah, think it the, the states are numbered. I just it's like you're saying, man. Hey, um, we can have global internet, but you're really gonna upset a couple nerds on a podcast, you know, Tony and <laughs> yeah. Dustin. Tony and Dustin don't want you to, so don't do so, it. Oh, it's like, that's yeah. it, guys. Oh well, <laughs> yeah. Oh well, <laughs> Tony said no. <laughs> Look, I got another question, and this one I know you I, you can uh, identify with. So let me let me see right. get to you because we're running out of time here. But um, they said, Tony, I want to do astrophotography, but being out in the dark alone scares me. What should I do? <laughs> Call Dustin. <laughs> <laughs> He's my star buddy. <laughs> star buddies. Yeah. Hey, starbuddy.com. That's what we need a dating site or a, 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 a buddy system. That's what we'll do. Star buddy. Uh, get to go out there and. We've talked about it. that before, though, how creepy yeah. that is. You know, you can't, you can't invite people out if it's just you, <laughs> no matter how innocent it is without sounding like the world's biggest creep, man. I know, man. You got your neighbor, you know, he sees you like you're, uh, you're adjusting your telescope on your driveway and he's like, hey, bro, that's a pretty cool scope. And he goes like, yeah, man. Hey, hey, bro, how about coming out with me and then going out in the middle of the Mojave Desert uh, tonight? You want to come with me to take a look? No, man, that's all right. You know, it's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I'm a, I'm a pass. Yeah, I'm a no, pass. No, it'll be cool, dude. man. It'll just be me and you out there. And, yeah, we'll be, you know, you know, no one can hear you scream. <laughs> what? Hey, where you going, man? You mad, bro? Come on back. <laughs> yeah. It's all right. <laughs> all right. All right. Next, <laughs> next question. Tony. If you want to completely remove somebody's mind from their body and just blow it entirely, what is your go-to science fact? Oh, my God, man. You really put me on the spot on this one. Um, 
You don't have like your your party trick? No, man. I don't uh I don't have one, man. Sorry. <laughs> I don't have a I don't have a go-to science fact. I'd be more concerned if you did. You don't have to apologize for that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Next question. Dustin, why do you hate visual astronomy? <laughs> Sign Tony. <laughs> I don't hate visual astronomy at all. I have a 20-inch Dobsonian at my house that I get out. Actually, I got it out when you were at the house, Tony. I know. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I roll this thing out. That. Yep. I've got this thing on wheels. I roll it out and uh, I use it visually while my uh, imaging scopes are running. And I don't hate visual astronomy. I just think it's a completely different experience than imaging. I think that if you show someone an image, a high resolution color image of a galaxy, even on your phone that you took, and then you show someone or even worse, describe to someone that same galaxy that you looked at through an eyepiece, the difference is so dramatic. You know, it's like one of them is going to absolutely blow them away and show them the universe around them. And then the other one's like, you should have seen this fuzzy ball that when I looked at at the corner of my eye, I could almost see it a little less fuzzy. You know, like that's... That's the difference when you're talking about these super deep space objects. For things like the moon and Jupiter and Saturn, I, I would flip that. I think that even though you can take absolutely stunning images, breathtaking images of Jupiter and Saturn and the moon, it's still, for me, more powerful, I, I believe, to show people that visually through an eyepiece. Because there, there's a lot there when you're just looking through an eyepiece and you can see it in real time and you can see it move and you know that it's just that what you're seeing is actually there right now. There's a lot to be said for that. And that experience is one that I feel like connects you to the process. But unfortunately, our eyes just are not good enough and neither is the equipment to show you the deep space stuff in that same clarity. And now neither is the night sky. So you're right. I mean, that's, that's well said. There's like, I don't know, three, maybe four things that visual astronomy does better than uh, than than imaging, uh, as you said, the moon, Jupiter, Saturn, and if you've got a solar filter, then the sun during solar max, um, and you know that that would be it. That that visual stuff does better, but uh, it, and and this is tied into the loss of our night skies, the advent of some of this new technology that's coming along, like the Stellina, because there is something that you can give, uh, you could set up on a on a literally in Times Square or in a big city on a sidewalk pointed at something, have that person get an app and they can have that same image of the crab nebula or what, you know, or the Andromeda galaxy or the Pleiades or M57, whatever it is you're looking at. Uh, and they can take that home with them and I'll be damned if it doesn't look really good. I mean, it looks really, it's yeah. in color. It, it's like, right. you know, and it's your own personal thing. You connected that night with someone uh, who was looking at M57, and you took M57 home with you. That's pretty darn powerful. Yeah, exactly. And now you so, have this shareable you know, experience. I yeah, yeah. And that's huge. That's really huge. There is a romance that goes with visual astronomy, but it is it is that's really all it is. It's a direct connection between you, your eye, and the universe that is unlike anything else. But very few people can really... I think connect in that way with with what they're doing through an IP. So this other stuff, mm -hmm. and especially in the day and age we live in, with the cell phone being so popular, that the um, 
that this is this is the way we're going to go. This is the the future of visual astronomy, I think. Okay, next question. Yeah, this one uh, this one came through the Space Junk podcast uh, comments, and uh, it says Dustin versus Tony. Whose beard is better? You know, I think this has been needed to be addressed for a while now. Hmm. And first off, Tony has no beard. Okay, yeah, so this is I important just, to know. I just got to go. Nor can he grow one. Tony <laughs> is more of what you would think of as like prepubescent child. So smooth on the face that the wind literally whistles as it passes <laughs> his cheeks. I'm very aerodynamic on my face, yes. It's hard to talk to Tony. <laughs> Yeah, because of just this loud whistle every time the wind blows. That smooth <laughs> cheek. So <laughs> we need to post better pictures so that people stop asking this question, Tom. Yes, indeed. And I and I and I have to back that up with actual facts because what you say is in fact true. Throughout my life, um, <laughs> there whistle. is only there is only one <laughs> picture of me with no facial hair. That was in 1985. I was in the army. And um, I had to shave it because I didn't think I could grow a, a mustache. But for many years, I had just a mustache. And if you look at pictures of me from the 80s, 90s, and the early 2000s, you'll see this very <laughs> cheesy <laughs> sort of, I don't know how else to say it, but when I'm looking back on it, it's just like some 70s porn star, you know, look I had going. I don't even know what I was doing. But I really tried several times throughout my life to grow a beard. And what you said happened it was very patchy it didn't it didn't cover my whole face and so i stuck uh, with a mustache and then later i added the goat and that was uh that's where it's been ever since so you're right it's sad it's a sad sad thing but you would win your your beard would win for sure but we yeah, both I, lose we it. both lose to um oh shoot i'm drawing a blank on his name now uh bryce no 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 um hans hans thank you hans yeah from uh, yeah. from Wavelength Brewery, uh, that boy's got a beard. Oh, there have been vehicles lost in that thing. <laughs> That's yeah. a great beard. So if you're in the area, go to Wavelength Brewery and check out Hans's beard. He will uh, probably let you move in. I think he let, rents it out on Airbnb sometimes. So you can uh, you can live in that thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's the next question, Tony. Do you have a big telescope? I do not. No. All I have is a um, an astro scan that I that I bought um, back in the early '80s for Haley's Comet, and I have a Star Navigator that I borrowed from Dustin and that I'm using right now. It's a 125 Max, so that's what I have right now that I'm using in my telescope repertoire. And then I get access to things periodically from either Dustin or you know people letting me do reviews and stuff on the telescopes so i stopped well, were, i used to have an lx200 a, a 10 inch that i really loved but i sold it in 2007 just because i never used it what's better tony a big telescope or starting out with a small one based on what i've learned from dustin and in the two years that i've been hanging out with him i would say that i used to say that i would want a large dobsonian but it, to just for to be able to see things clearly bright images through the eyepiece and and all of that kind of stuff now i've learned that i did not know prior to knowing dustin and opt was just how good the refractors have gotten and now that's where i would go with something like a four inch um uh apo i i would love to get my hands on some of these and uh, just just either do imaging or visual astronomy through those. So 
I don't know, man, but the coatings and the, 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 the focal lengths of these refractors, I'm not so sure big scopes are all like all that necessary anymore. And especially when you've got such a bright sky background from light pollution, the big scopes, there's diminishing returns. I mean, what do you say, Dustin? You have much more experience on this. We see, you know, we still sell a lot of the, the larger telescopes, but um, we are seeing more people start to, you know, get things that are portable. And uh, people are traveling with telescopes now on airplanes and, and doing quite a bit of that. So getting mounts like the Hobo mount that you can throw in a backpack and then, or, you know, even like... Um, the uh, little Skywatcher tracking heads, you know, that stuff is is perfect for just throwing in a backpack and then throwing like William Optics makes the Red Cat. Uh, that that telescope is tiny, tiny, it, it's the size of like a Coke bottle, you know. Mm-hmm. So being able to throw all your gear in a backpack, there's a lot to be said for that and, you know, go hiking or whatever it is you want to do with it. And uh, being able to travel around and bring your gear with you. I mean, that's that's what we're seeing a lot of right now. Yeah, and I, I forgot to mention, I also have a PST, uh, uh, Coronado telescope. Yeah, that's great. It's just 40 millimeters, and I love that thing. I put it on. Those are so good, man. Yeah, and I, I feel I, like that's one of my favorite scopes. Scope. So, yeah, I mean, it's. So, I guess bigger isn't always better these days. Um, and like I said, with, uh, with aperture, you really do need bright skies, but I don't know. I mean, with imaging, you just take longer exposures, right? I mean, more of them. Uh, visually, yeah. you can benefit from a 20 inch dob, but I don't know. Well, you got to have the skies for it, but when you yeah. do have the skies for it, you know, there, there's nothing that beats the resolution of just a, uh, like a big plane wave or, you know, uh, AG or, or one of these other scopes, these off of Chinas, you know, these, these huge CDKs out there. It's just amazing. The resolution on target you can get with these big telescopes under stable skies. And I guess with the with the advent of citizen science going out, there's there's several projects out there now. One of them is uh, uh, Project Panaptes. is it's being run by some guys out at on Hawaii with Keck, and they will they have plans for you to buy some Canon DSLRs with I think some hundred millimeter uh, lenses. I forget the size of the lenses, but you know they they don't even want you to get to do science uh, large aperture. Uh, equipment they would much rather have something smaller portable that can be remote controlled easily uh than something with a big aperture what a big aperture does get you with science with astronomy is magnitude you can see much much fainter things you want to see something around 15 or 16 or 17 magnitude right you really can't do it with small apple refractors you've got to have a larger uh, aperture so that's really the only time it matters all right, so we are just about out of time, but I can get one or two more questions in here. So um, the next question is a very serious one, it looks like. It says, Tony, which of you two parties harder? <laughs> which of I don't know. <laughs> well, when I'm, I tell you what, when I'm with Dustin and Ian, too, uh, that the, the, the game goes way up. You know? <laughs> yeah, but, you know, uh, we're over here blaming you for that. So Are honestly, because we're, yeah, oh, we're Tony's like, oh man, man. we got to get ready. Tony's coming. <laughs> yeah, get some sleep. It's going to be wild when he gets it's gonna here. It's going to be wild. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm like, oh, I'm going to go see Dustin. I better get my, my hangover uh, medicine and all that other stuff I got to pack up. Man, yeah. we so, did drink uh, a lot of scotch in uh, in New York. Yeah, I don't lot, know. We have a lot good of time, good though. I mean, we have oh, a really yeah. good time together and we talk, sure. we laugh a lot and we, uh, and that's, that's huge. I mean, there's nothing like being out in the middle of a, a 
pitch dark sky and you just hear these people laughing their ass off. So <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit uh, disconcerting. It, it, it's always, always a good time, man. Yeah, it is. It is. So I don't know, man. I, I, I think we do. We both hold our own. All right. So what about this one? The, we can end it on this one. What do you say to someone who says studying space is a waste of time? Fuck off. <laughs> well, and there you have it. <laughs> yeah, that was easy. So I'm going to have to push the explicit button on this one when I upload it, guys. So everybody looks for the explicit tag on that. Uh, you know, what do you say to somebody like that? Are they just are they being a troll? Are they being you know, are they just being contrarian? Are they uh, do they really not see the value of? No, I the think maybe they I mean, don't see the value because they're saying, look, we're never going to get to these places. What what does it have to do? Or maybe they're saying practical, practically, you know, we could spend those resources on things that can have a more direct, immediate effect on bettering humanity. I've heard that argument before. I don't agree with it. But I've heard that argue before. Yeah, before. in a practical sense, the fact that Trappist One has all these habitable worlds, or that Proxima Centauri B may be something we could live on, in a practical sense, it, it's it, it doesn't matter. We're not going to get to it. We're not going to live on it. What's the point, right? Uh, but at the same time, I'm reading news stories about how uh, entanglement with quantum mechanics is being experimented with for communications and even uh, distance. I think they even tele somebody even actually teleported something recently using uh, quantum mechanical theories, and they actually were able to move something from one spot to another instantaneously w using this entanglement idea. So, I mean, it's impractical now, but does that mean it's always going to be impractical? Well, you can't say that, can you? I mean, we don't know that we're never going to make it. Um, Einstein's certainly very pessimistic on our ability to get anywhere uh, outside our solar system. Uh, you know, it's four years, four and a half years just to get to uh, Alpha Centauri. So that's um, that's very depressing. And that's if we traveled at the speed of light. Uh, it's more like 20,000 years using the technology that we currently have. So uh, practically, this has no real use. But for our humanity and for our uh, our own sense of existence, it's the most important thing we could we could ever do. To know our place in the universe is vitally important. It has no practical sense, but it has a definite emotional and spiritual and intangible sense of who we are. If, if it was no big deal, then humanity would never look up. If it was no big deal, then we wouldn't give a shit about traveling anywhere else in the universe or, or even figuring out why there are lights in the sky. It's a big deal on some level to every single human being, and it's what drives us to look up. So I can't argue with the with the impracticality of it. Yes, it is. I mean, it's it's Mars is also not habitable. Why in the hell would we want to go live on Mars? Anybody who lives there is going to die there. Uh, they're not going to be able to come home. Um, being in space is incredibly lethal right now. We don't even have salt. We don't have any of this solved. Even just going to the moon is going to be fraught with all kinds of fatal problems with our biology. So we've got a lot of problems to solve, but. I can't, I can't say that it's not worth doing. It's, it, it, it fills a part of my humanity that, that is vital to my existence. And to know my place in the universe is way more important to me than any kind of practical consideration might be. I mean, that's just who I am. And I think more, most people are like that. The people who don't uh, want it to be a big deal are the ones who 
have other problems that they'd like to see solved first that happens to be expensive. Like, why do we spend $9 billion on the James Webb Space Telescope to see the first stars and galaxies in the universe when we need that money here? Well, that's a real argument and a discussion that can be had. But why are we also okay with a $15 billion aircraft carrier that does the same thing when we could be using this to pay off to help people eat or to give people shelter or to give people health care. So these are all real discussions that should be had. <clears throat> but um, to say that it doesn't matter or is, is, is useless is, is just not true. Yeah. I mean, what kind of life would it, if every decision was just made for practicality reasons, what kind of life is that? Why do anything? Why right. ever take a vacation? Why, why not everybody have exactly the same vehicle, exactly the same shoes? Like, you know, like why do anything at all ever? If we, that's know? right. And if we only were driven by what's practical, then all we would do is work at our job all the time, 50, 60 hours a week, earn money, pay our bills, buy stuff and eat food and just move around our lives. But it is a well-known issue that when you do this and nothing else, you start to feel unhappy. You start to feel less fulfilled. So is there, are you being true to your humanity by working all the time, by being and only devoting yourself to practical endeavors? If all we were is as a practical species, then a person who works 100 hours a week would be the happiest person ever. Midlife crises would never be a thing, and we would all be just, just perfectly happy working, spending money, and eating, and, and consuming, and being practical. But that's just not enough for anybody. And so why do we do these things? And I think it's to fulfill a, a really vital need in our humanity. And so, and part of it is understanding our place in the universe. That's part of it. So you're, yes, it's impractical in one way, but another way it's very practical for our well-being. So you tell me which is the better way to go. I'm not going to work my ass off all the time and not have any thought about my life at all and not examine what I'm, what I've done and how I've lived and what makes my life worth living. Is it to get a paycheck? Is that what we're after? I don't see it. Yeah, no, I don't either. So I've been really negative in this episode, haven't I? <laughs> I feel, I feel like all I've done is complain. No, man, no. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's, yeah, man, you did, no. you did. <laughs> Dude, no, I think dude, it's, I think it's good. These are out, real, man. Yeah. These are some challenges. Some of them are challenging topics. Others are, um, well, I guess all of them, all of yeah. them, even the beard question, they're all pretty challenging. I need, to get a, I need to get a, like a snappy answer to blow people's mind. Now that's what I learned from this episode. I don't have one. Yeah. Like, that's the only one that stumped you is what is your go, go to science fact to I blow somebody's mind? Yeah. I don't want to, I don't care if anybody's mind gets blown really if they can't see it on their own i don't really want to make them see it um, i think you're blowing minds all the time tony i just do it i just just <laughs> it's all you do okay well uh wow this was a fun one dustin so <laughs> i feel like i need to go uh go to uh positivity anonymous or something and, and start getting a getting an outlook change i feel like i bummed everybody i didn't mean to harsh everybody's <laughs> buzz guys i'm real sorry about that <laughs> We're, maybe our nice guys will come back i don't know <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> I guess I am a bit of a contrarian today, but um, okay. Well, I want to uh, keep the questions coming, guys. All of you who listen to our podcast, we couldn't do that. You are why we're here. You're why we're doing this. And and Dustin and I are very happy when you let us know what's working and what you want to hear about. And and if you've got any more questions, please send them our way. Lots of places to do that. You can uh, you could leave it uh, on the Instagram accounts that we talked about earlier, and there's also Anchor.fm. So please check us out. And on behalf of my good friend and co-host, Dustin Gibson, I want to thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.